This happened a few Sundays ago. A friend, Catelyn, came around with her husband Peter and their two small children. Everything was going fine. The children were running around the kitchen. Then she asked me if I was worried about bird flu. I just sort of said, oh, are you ready for bird flu? Thinking that he would have an enjoyable panic and I could sit back and enjoy that and I, I would have scored a goal. But he went, oh yeah, Tammy flu, which is widely accepted to be kind of the, the best hope against bird flu. And I said, oh yeah, 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 have you been researching him? And now I've got some. And at that moment, four or five responses ran through my head. First of all, it was like, okay, John's already got it. That means he knows more about this than I do. I've just merely been researching it, but he's already got it. So I thought, he's got more information than I have. So when I told Catelyn that I had tummy flu, I noticed her glancing at her two small children who were running around the kitchen here. And then I walked over to the medicine cabinet and I opened it up and I... Ah, whoops. And I said, here it is. I've got it. You're looking at me, Laura, as if I made the whole thing up. I really do have tummy flu. Did you think I was... Yeah, I did. You thought I was inventing this, now I've really got the tummy flu. I like the look of shock on your face when I got it out. That's the same look that Catelyn had. It was a look of absolute shock and outrage and jealousy. It's not jealousy, it's just that you're so extreme. What, to have the tummy yeah. flu? <laughs> so I got it out of the medicine cabinet and I said, look, I've got tummy flu. I, I mean, I didn't, in a subtle, you know, it was more like this. I got it out of the medicine cabinet and I said, look, I've got tummy flu. And then I put it away again really quickly, a little too quickly. <laughs> and I closed the medicine cabinet. And then obviously I thought, Ronson's children are going to live and mine are going to die. But then there was a glimmer of hope because I, I remembered that when I'd been researching Tamiflu, because I'd been researching it online, that Tamiflu itself apparently doesn't work for bird flu. It's this specific one called um, Relenza that's the one that you need. And I, I thought Ronson might not have researched it as well as I did. So I just sort of casually said, oh, which one have you got? And he went, oh, Tamiflu. And I went, oh, Tamiflu. That's not effective against HN51. The only one they found effective against HN51 is Relenza. To which he immediately looked panicky. So I was like, yes, I pulled one back. I pulled one back. He looked very, very uncomfortable. Went, really? Really? And then he kind of tried to gather himself. Went, no, I'm sure, I'm sure I've read that Tamiflu's all right. And then I, I could tell you about how two girls who'd contracted avian flu in, I think, either China or Taiwan had been given Tamiflu and had subsequently died anyway, which obviously panicked him even more, so I was feeling quite satisfied by that point. So then Catelyn asked me how I got the Tamiflu, and I said, from the internet. And she said, oh, it's probably fake. <laughs> I said, no, it's genuine. And she said, well, how do you know it's genuine? And I said, because I emailed Rosh. Um, who, who manufactured Tamiflu, and I sent them a description of the packet and the serial numbers, and they emailed me back and said it was genuine. And I think she tried again then. She said, if you got it from the internet, it's probably fake. I said, it's genuine. And then she said, um, I should get Tamiflu. And I thought, well, good luck. <laughs> and I explained that I got mine a few months ago before the panic buying. And I, I also told her that she should be careful, because now, of course, there is a lot of fake Tamiflu about. And Rosh had told me that in their email, the email that confirmed that my Tamiflu was genuine. And then she said, anyway, Tamiflu doesn't work. You need to get Relenza, which I'd never heard of. This is Catelyn's husband, Peter. 
About five years ago, I remember seeing a documentary about what happens when plane crashes or, or catch fire or, or on the runway or whatever, and what the makeup of the different passengers and who's more likely to survive and what course of action you have to take if you're going to be one of the survivors. And apparently they found out that the people who follow the instructions who remember what the um, air hostess said, they're the people that are most likely to die. If you do what the majority of people do, then obviously you're going to die. And apparently the people who undo their seatbelts and sort of use the tops of all the chairs as kind of stepping stones to fast-track their way to the front of the plane, they're the people who survive. So I'm kind of pro-thinking out of the box in a way. And applying this to Samiflu, I think going online and getting the antidote would have probably been the equivalent of jumping over all the tops of the chairs and getting out. I don't believe an avian flu pandemic will hit. I base this assessment on the fact that we didn't all die of CJD. And also, I have an idea that the sort of people who don't believe in the imminence of a bird flu pandemic are enlightened free thinkers, and that's how I like to see myself. But still, when I told Catelyn that my tummy flu was in the medicine cabinet, a thought crossed my mind. I thought to myself I'd better move it somewhere else in the house when the pandemic hits, just in case they're struck down and in a desperate attempt to save their own lives, break in and steal our tummy flu. The thing is, when you're in a really bad situation, people say this time and time again, you're always surprised by the people that help you or that kind of come and offer your, their phone number and so forth. So I think concepts like true friendship are ones that are kind of best assessed in posterity with hindsight. It's only in this temporary moment that we presume that you're going to win, Ronson, because maybe my genes are stronger. He may have the Tammy flu. He could still die anyway. The battle isn't over yet. It's, it's only when the flu hits and we see who hits the deck that we will find out who has won this. There's still an ongoing battle. Well, I mean, none of us want a Ronson super race to walk the earth, but that goes without saying. <laughs> Something was going on with Catelyn, although I wasn't sure what. I remember some anthropological study that said a friendship cannot endure the inequality of one of the friends suddenly becoming a multi-millionaire. Eric Sigmund is an anthropologist who spends a lot of time in Burkina Faso, West Africa. One of the universal things that I have seen across the world, whether people have clay plates in their lips or bones through their noses or not, or baseball caps for that matter, is that where there is a big gap in financial power, you find an imbalance, that you find it next to impossible to have really a friendship with somebody when the difference is that great. Have you tried? I have a very difficult time when I go to very remote places having what you and I would call a friendship because I know all the time that the people that I am observing desperately need some of the resources that I have and with that comes forms of behavior that wouldn't be the same behavior as if that wasn't an issue. And it's impossible, try as you might, to break that and to just be friends with them. 
I think it would really stretch the term friendship. If you and I start off this conversation as we did with the idea of to what extent does there have to be some sort of equivalence or equality to call something a friendship, I think in that case we would be stretching the definition of friendship. So, for example, they could be sure that if their child contracted malaria, the type down there, by the way, is a very fatal type, that they would be able to buy a pharmaceutical product like Malarone, one of the modern ones, which could actually cure their child or prevent their child from developing malaria, then perhaps we could talk about friendship. But the fact that I can afford the malaria tablets and they can't makes friendship a very poignant term at a real survival level that you and I probably wouldn't have to understand here in England. Well, you know what Catelyn said to me when, when I showed her the Tamiflu and put it back in the medicine cabinet a bit too quickly, unfortunately. <laughs> I said, and I also said it a little bit weirdly. I said, I've got Tamiflu. But as, 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 I, as, as it came out, I sounded like uh, the Unabomber, sounded like, like an Idaho separatist. But uh, Catelyn, the first thing she said to me was, well, if you got it from the internet, then it's probably fake. And of course, the subtext is, you know, she was looking at her children running around the kitchen, I was looking at my son, and her subtext obviously was that, OK, we're going to die, but at least we'll die safe in the knowledge that you'll die too. <laughs> I thought, call yourself a friend. I don't want to know about evil Only want to know about love I don't want to know about evil Only want to know about love Here's the writer Lawrence Howarth telling me about a girl he used to go out with. Things began very much on an equal footing. We'd been going out for, I don't know, six months or so and it was all going all going very well. So you were just doing the things that people do in doing relationship. People do. We, we actually that, were living together as well. What things did you have in common? I really remember that we were both very sort of homely, so that we were in this flat and there were two other people there and they were both quite studenty and quite messy and we sort of bonded over grumbling about the other people to some extent. But also, she was an artist. I always like people who've got that creative side to them. And so everything was going well, but then out of the blue, she told him an unexpectedly strange thing. I think it was when her birthday was coming up, and I think maybe I asked her, how old you are, and she said, oh, you know, I'm 27. And, and then she sort of casually mentioned, although I'd never been quite sure when I was born. And I sort of laughed at this and thought, well, obviously you don't mean this, this is just something you're saying. And then the more we talked about it, the more she insisted, no, I, don't, I really don't know what year I was born in. Did she give you like a... A, a ball a spread, yeah. yeah. And well, it, after a while, we sort of I, obviously this sort of appeals to the puzzle solver in me. I thought, well, this this shouldn't be too hard to figure out. Not worrying about how weird it was at this stage, I said, well, this shouldn't be too hard to figure out. And she was sort of favouring somewhere around about 1970. I sort of started talking to her about, you know, when when had she done GCSEs or O levels things like this and try and piece it back try and go well we're here now let's go back where were you three years ago and try and take it back did she know exactly the year that she was doing her GCSEs she did yes I think so, could, so. Why so didn't you, you just should well I, di I did I think but so then she wouldn't accept that she thought that was wrong she thought I'd made a mistake somewhere and I was sort of very insistent saying well no clearly if you'd done it that year you must have been born 16 in, years earlier in fact yes exactly the more I sort of pressed this the more she got very uncomfortable and as if she didn't really want me to try and logically figure out when she was born and she sort of retreated to this position that actually she was a couple of years older than I was making out 
the first conversation sort of ended about there. Um, so it wasn't over in one conversation? No, no, it was a subject that I would come back to when I felt that I could, because obviously I was thinking, this is very strange. Who doesn't know their date of birth? We all know that, surely. So Did I you would... think she was being pretentious in well, claiming not to know her date of birth? I think that's exactly what she may have been. I wondered whether it's one of these things where you tell a stupid lie and you end up trapped in it just for the sake of consistency for a long time. I wondered whether she was trying to make out that she was more ditzy and airheaded in a sort of appealing way than she was. I would say, how can you not know like this? And, and she went, oh, well, when I was at university, I took a lot of drugs, you know, which I thought was just very weak and lame and rather sort of insulting as a sop to throw to me. And I thought, well, that's just clearly not true if you're expecting me to buy that. Did you ever travel abroad with her? No, we didn't, no. Which, Did... which of course, is leading to the passport thing. So, I know I never saw her passport. It makes you question everything else, and that's, in fact, what the things that caused the relationship to end in my case, I think. But I did never find out, and when I talk about it now, it seems even more weird than it did at the time. It seems absolutely bizarre, as if I was living with some <laughs> film psycho character, you know, that you're going, this is... She doesn't know her date of birth. How? An early clue in the movie. Yes, exactly. An early clue. That's right. That's right. This person's not to be trusted. Is like what when it feels they, like. Like when they get their hair cut to look just like you. It, it's a bit like that. Lawrence Howard. I bet his girlfriend, in retrospect, wishes she never mentioned it. I'm standing outside Middle Temple Lane in the City of London tonight. Carol Stone is having a party. Carol Stone has invited 1,300 of her, of her friends. The invitation says, Simon and John, Simon's my, my producer, Simon and John, once again I'm holding my Christmas party and I'd like you to be there. So 1,300 of her friends are going to be there. Fill your heart with love today. Don't play the game of time. Things that happened in the past only happened in your mind, only in your mind. So far, it all seems a little depressing. That we're all so self-obsessed, we can only be friends with people just like us. People from our world, with our advantages and disadvantages. People who have the same things we have. I wanted to come to Carol's party. If she has, as she claims, 25,000 friends, they can't all be equal. Can Carol's party prove the anthropologists wrong? Do you consider me a friend, Simon? We've been working together for a year. Well, you're a professional acquaintance, John, but... It's not like we spend a lot of time together outside of the working environment. I don't consider you a friend either. I think this is it. Carl Stone. We're looking for Carl Stone. Yeah. Great. She's in there somewhere. Okay. Is she a friend of yours? No. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it looks like Hogwarts Academy where we are now. It's a giant, grand hall. High vaulted ceilings. Hello. Richard, I'm John Ronson. This is my acquaintance, Simon Jacobs. Hi. Um, we're looking for Carol. She'll be down in a moment. Is Carol a friend of yours? Um, I hope so, because we're married. Oh, really? 
She's got a lot of friends. I've just been... She has got a lot of friends. More and more every year. It's her greatest happiness, I think. Even more, I fear, the marriage. How many people are you expecting tonight? Well, it'll be over a thousand. Oh, is this Carol? Hello. Sorry, hello. That's, it's, it's Simon. That's yes, Simon. I'm Simon, hello, and John. Are you nervous, Carol? Uh, not nervous so much as feeling full of anticipation, I think. So pretty much everybody in this room you would, you would count as being a friend? Pretty much people in this room are either people I've known well, some family, some very good friends I've known for years and years. Some people I've only met maybe two or three years ago, maybe through business, through work. But to me, there is no line between friendship and professional people. They all merge. I think they're potential friends. They're people literally, if I don't know them well, I think wouldn't mind knowing them better. So you've got 25,000 people in your book. On you've my database. On your database. You've invited 1,000 No, I've friends. invited about 1,800. About 1,800 friends. About 1,000 are coming. Mm -hmm. So that means the way you could look at this is that you haven't made 1,000, 1,800 people happy. You've made 23,000 people feel a little bit sort of, well, what have I done to Absolutely Carol? right. Who do you drop off and who do you keep on? I do agonise because I feel that you never know. Tonight at my party, who might you meet? A job, a man, a woman, some sort of adventure. Whereas my husband, who is a reluctant networker, would think if he couldn't go to a party, thank goodness for that. Carol went off to fix some problems regarding wine and nuts. And when she came back, I told her what the anthropologists say about how friends need to be of an equal standing, financially, or in terms of the possession of Tamiflu, or the whole thing falls apart. Total rubbish. It is everything that I don't believe in about friendship. I have friends who are slightly backward, I have friends who have no money, I have friends who are multimillionaires. To say that people from a different background or a different intellect or different material worth can't be friends is total, total rubbish and missing the point of friendship. If that person's still alive, I'd like to meet them. I'm glad that you remembered that it wasn't me who said that because I suddenly thought that, you know, our friendship, because you, if you thought it was me, then our friendship no, would be over before no, it had even begun. Because you got so cross. That's the magic of friendship. This is Claire, who's the daughter of Sandy Habit, who's a, who's a friend of mine. This is Karine from Paris. People started to arrive. Mohammed Al-Fayed's former PR man, Michael Cole. Lord Steele. People Carol met on the tube and just got talking to. Andrew Marr, who I've met before. She's the ultimate networker and has been for 20 years. It is, at one level, absurd, and another level, completely wonderful. Because the sheer range of people gathered in this, in this room well, who, who is here? I saw, I saw Michael Cole. politicians, PR people, business people, civil servants. So why are you here? Free drink. So you can afford to drink? Yeah, but I mean... No, 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 I'm, no, I'm here because I've, no, I've known Carol for a good 15 years, actually. I've known her a really long time. It's much, I mean, it's a much, much more glamorous person than I thought it would be. There's Virginia Bottomley's over there, or someone who looks like her. We know that Michael Cole is here. Yeah. But nobody, nobody really wants to talk to us. Everybody seems very well balanced. I don't know about you, Simon, but I always think of people as being sort of fragile eggshells with a whole load of paranoias and insecurities all bubbling around inside them like molten lava. But here at this party, everyone seems just like, you know, just calm and ordinary and just chatting away. 
And they all look incredibly confident and assured, and they know exactly what they're doing in a social situation. Yeah, no molten lava at all. No, not even dormant. Don't try and compete <laughs> with my aptitude for metaphor. <laughs> anyway, should we, should we mix? Yeah, let's, let's mingle. I want to go. Why? Well, because no one's talking to us. We seem completely unwelcome. No, let's go to Michael Cole. Okay. Cole said, who knows what adventures might ensue if a stranger approaches a stranger at a party with an open heart. The stranger I've chosen is Mohammed Al-Fayed's former PR man, Michael Cole. How will we get on? Find out in a few minutes. Here again is the anthropologist, Eric Sigman. I found that there are problems when people attempt to form friendships when there are big class differences. Yeah, I've noticed, in fact, one or two, you know, when I've met people from the ruling classes, they're always incredibly nice, but it's kind of like benevolent superiority. And you only realise after you've been with them for a while that that's what it is. They're being nice because they just know how superior they are to the lower middle classes like myself. Very often, they were at liberty to... To be incredibly nice. To be incredibly nice, because there are very few minute-to-minute um, -minute challenges. And as you say, they go to sleep at night knowing that... Um, They're better than us. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. On the other hand, they can also afford to be terribly rude because there are no consequences. There's this kind of private club called Quintessentially that, as I understand it, sets visiting actors and actresses up with membership during their stay in London so that they can get free membership into the, all the events of the season, like kind of Henley and the Cartier Polo and all that kind of thing. And as a result, they get a social set free <laughs> as an added bonus. And the so like a group of friends? It's like a sort of, of yeah. posh friends for her? Yes, you sort of take on whoever the person is. This is an actor, we'll call him Marcus. He became friends with a famous actress when they were filming together in London, and somehow this actress got involved with Freddie Windsor and Quintessentially.com. They all ended up having dinner together. My friend, for whatever reasons, was taken on by this crowd. And I thought when I got there, well, the only person I know here is going to be my friend, so I have to make sure I sit next to her. And Freddie Windsor managed to get in to the chair that I was kind of making a beeline for. So I ended up at the end of the table, and it was so painful. I kept trying to make conversation with Freddie Windsor, but, you know, he didn't know who I was, so I wasn't of any use to him at all, so he kind of drew a blank at me. And every time I tried to talk to my friend, who was on the other side of him, he would lean forward so that I couldn't speak to her. You mean deliberately? Well, I can only assume it was, it was deliberate. It was very odd. I mean, I only managed to get through about half of the starter before I decided it was kind of time to make a, a sharp exit. He had already asked, um, which I was kind of flabbergasted by, the waiter came in and he sent the waiter out to the shops to buy batteries for his iPod. I couldn't kind of deal with it any longer because I couldn't speak to my friend and I was trapped between Freddie Windsor and this fixer. <laughs> and uh, so I texted a friend of mine who lived quite nearby under the table and said, please just call me in, in five minutes. Whatever you do, call me in five minutes. And my phone rang and I then delivered the most appalling performance very loudly, saying, oh my God, that's terrible. Yes, of course I'll come around straight away. Of course I will. 
And, uh, and they all said, why, what's happened? I said, well, my friend's dog's been hit by a car. And I'm going to have to go around and, you know, calm, calm them down. So, But I'll come back, kind of lying through my teeth. And as I was leaving, I just heard this kind of drawl coming from behind me, from Freddie Winter, saying, saying oh, yeah, I, I mean, I've got to go to Ibiza, like, first thing in the morning. And, uh, yeah, I, can you just get me some Red Bull on the way back? Because I can't sleep. It's like a really early flight. <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's 8pm back at Carol Stone's Christmas party for a thousand of her friends. I'm about to do what Carol advised, approach one of those thousand strangers. Carol said if I do that, who knows what adventures might ensue. The stranger I've chosen is Mohammed Al Fayed's former PR man, Michael Cole. I'm trying to get Carol to introduce me to Michael Cole, but she keeps rushing over to talk to other people, and it reminds me of something that she said earlier, before the party started. Someone said to me, only last week, Carol, I feel you're too busy to ask to come to tea, too busy to ask to come to lunch, too busy to ask to come to dinner, and I should be pleased when you're not keeping in touch with quite so many people. But to be absolutely honest, one or two thousand people tell me that. Okay, we're approaching Michael Cole, former PR man to Mohammed Al Fayed. Michael, very nice to meet you. We recognised you the minute right, you walked you in. And we are now friends, are we? Do you think there's some people here who are saying, well, why have I been invited? I've only met her once. That's a bit weird. Well, I, I actually despise the term networking. It implies that it's a rather low craft designed for some sort of gain. You see, David Steele, for four or five years, I covered in the journalistic sense, not the equine sense, David Steele. I'd quite like to go over and say, how are you, you old second-hand car salesman, and what are you doing now up in Scotland? Aren't you glad to escape Edinburgh? Isn't it terribly boring? So I would never see him, but for the fact that he's, he's over there. For people of your age, you'll have to be reminded who David Steele is. What does covering David Steele in the equine sense mean? Like, like, like... Look it up in the dictionary. Well, like, you're on top of him and like a horse. Ah, no, oh, well, that's right, that's right, that's right. It was only a little joke. I don't understand it, though. Well, you should do. You've had a university education. A polytechnic. You, you, you more or less got the joke. Um, Which programme is this for? It's a late-night Radio 4 programme on friendships. Jolly um, good. Yeah. Well, why don't you just invite all the listeners in rather than broadcasting it? Because there can't be more than half a dozen, and then you'd really have friendship. That's very kind. OK, well, thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. I didn't like him. He was horrible. He said a few things that I found quite annoying. You know, usually you wouldn't be able to say that about an interviewee, but because it's a party situation, you can't say it. He said, nobody listens to our show. And then he made some joke about, I can only assume, about a horse having sex with David Steele. Which, you know, I just, I just, I just came as a bolt from nowhere. thousand people from all walks of life cheered, united in a shared love for Carol, and then they dispersed, some in limos, others on buses, all feeling equal. 
John Ronson on Friendship was written and presented by John Ronson. The producer was Simon Jacobs at Unique, the production company. And next week, John will be confronting the subject of waiting at the same time, 11 o'clock.